Howdy, Acts 39. Hey, how good was that? Holy moly. I feel like you should have gone last. Whew. All right. Hey, I'm Joby. If we've never met, uh, uh, so good to be here in the uh, global family that is Acts 29 with the exotic accents that you get to hear. I bring to you the native redneck American. That is what I am. By the grace of God. In fact, when we planted the church of 1122, by the way, I'll just admit it, we have the dumbest church name in the history. We didn't mean to be a church. It was a total accident. We started a service, and it, and it outgrew the church that we were at, and the service started at 1122. So that's what it is, all right? Crowded house, coolest name. 1122, so dumb. Doesn't even make sense. So then we had to do all the things I was taught not to do. We searched the whole Bible and found... Mark 11:22. Thank God. It says, and Jesus answered, had faith in God. It was about to be some about from Leviticus about sacrificing the goat on the third blood moon or something like that. But that's that's what we did, and we and we planted the church in a Walmart. We renovated an, an old Walmart, and when I called my daddy, I said, "Daddy, we're gonna put the church in a Walmart." He said, "Boy, I always thought you'd work at Walmart." So. So I offered him a job as a greeter, and that's, uh, that's what we did. So, <clears throat> hey, I, it's an honor to be here, and uh, I have been asked to, to preach on holiness, obviously. First Peter 1.6, we know this well. Be holy, for I am holy. Now we know, I man, this is Acts 29, we know... That, that our holiness is not rooted in our activity. Our holiness is rooted in our identity in Christ. I, I feel like with, with our crowd, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on that. But, but in reality, holiness is rooted in humility. Holiness means my life has been set apart for God, by God, that my life is not my own. And the command is to be holy, for I am holy. Even though I feel like we know theologically about Christ-imputed righteousness, Christ-imputed righteousness is no excuse to sin. Christ-imputed righteousness is no license for us to pursue unrighteousness. Spurgeon says it this way. Grace is the mother and nurse of holiness, not the apologist of sin. And so, when, when I was asked to, to look at this subject, immediately, for whatever reason, my mind went to 1 Timothy 4.12. That, that the Apostle Paul, so it's interesting when we get here that we are, we are talking about this this idea that, that Paul is passing the baton, passing the torch to young Timothy. That, 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 that Paul is saying to Timothy, recall our tears together. And I believe that the tears that they were crying together is that moment in Acts when, when Paul gathers Timothy and the elders of the church of Ephesus together and he places his hands on Timothy and he commissions him, he gives him this word. And we know that Timothy's got a whole lot working against him. 
And I imagine Paul is begging God, God, give me the words to say to this young man to encourage him. And we know that he needs encouragement. We know that he's timid. We know that he's afraid. We even know that like he's got a, he's got a stomach issue. Maybe when he gets up to do this thing, he gets nervous. And this is why Paul will say, take a little wine for your stomach. I read a Southern Baptist commentary that said that was for external use. I don't, I don't think it is. It's not, it's not sunscreen. So anyway, I digress. <clears throat> but one of the things that Paul encourages Timothy with in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 is this. Let no one despise you for your youth. Acts 29, as a, as a gathering of churches, we're pretty young. I mean, compared to like the Southern Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans, I mean, we're a, in fact, I think we turned 21 this year. So now we can legally drink. That's cool. <laughs> but he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Let's be honest, man. A lot of us despise juveniles and their behavior. Especially if you've got some growing up in your home, right? And what do you despise about them? The way they talk, the way they conduct themselves, their selfishness, their, the, the way that they are so circumstantial. And in, to that, Paul says, Timothy, and I, I hope as a network we will hear these words. Acts 29, let no one despise us for our youth, but set the believers an example. In other words, the way that we live matters. Obedience matters. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Let me ask you this. If your entire church and everyone watching you followed your example, would that be a good thing? In these areas, in speech. Like, when you talk, are you speaking life or death? And I'm not talking about when you have a face mic on. Man, you're so good at that. Me too. And oftentimes the things that make us so good doing this thing make us pretty horrendous to live with. You know how like you're quick-witted and you're sharp and you have a Bible verse for everything? Imagine being married to that. In your home, do you speak life or do you speak Death. How about this one, A29? When you use foul language, is it really just rooted in ego? Like, look how free I am. I can say bad words. Or is it rooted in insecurity? In order to fit in here, I'll use this kind of language and other people will be impressed. We are to set for the believers an example in our speech, in what we say, and how we say it, in the way that we speak to one another, and it begins in our homes. We are to set for them an example in our conduct. Let me ask you this. How are you conducting your life? How are you conducting your household? How are you conducting your finances? I mean, I meet pastors who can preach on generosity, but, but, are, but are some of the poorest stewards of finances that I've ever met. They had credit card, credit card debt up to their eyeballs and a thousand dollar pair of sneakers. Cause they're trying to contextualize the gospel. Nah, bruh, you're just stupid. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if, if you were God, would you give you more money based on the way you're wasting it now? 
Do you conduct yourself as an ambassador of the king saved by his grace? Do you conduct yourself as a shepherd that will be held to a higher standard? Or, I mean, the word holy just means set apart. Or is our conduct indistinguishable from this world? Do you drink too much? Do you neglect your body? Are you just as busy as the rest of the world? Be holy. Be set apart as an example. Set for them an example in love. How are you conducting your household? Husbands, does your wife feel like the most valuable thing in your life, second only to your relationship with Jesus? Wives, does your husband feel like you are his biggest cheerleader or his biggest critic? I will tell you, you can jot this down. Your husband has the Holy Spirit, and it's not you. The things that you are saying to him, are you loving him? Husbands, are you loving your wife and laying your life down for her? You see, Jesus commands us to love our wife. He told us to raise our children. He commands us to love him. He said the church building, he's got it under control. Do our kids feel like the primary disciples in our life, or do they feel like they get the leftovers? We should set an example in the way that we love. We should set an example when it comes to faith. Pastor, church planner, is your life ruled by faith or ruled by fear? You see, I think this is the crux of all of 2 Timothy. I think when Paul puts his hands on Timothy, and again, Timothy's got a lot to overcome. His father's never mentioned in the scriptures, so he's gone. He's got a lot to overcome. He's afraid, he's young, he's going to be pastoring people older than him. This timidity begins to rise up, and Paul gets this word from God and lays his hands on this young man and says this, Timothy, God did not give you a spirit of fear. You see, I think that the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's not. If you've got some doubts, no problem. You can make a great disciple. Pick up your doubts, follow after Jesus. That's what you do. How are you going to pay for the building? How are you going to pay for the rent? How are you going to find a worship leader? You know, that kind of stuff. I don't know. Picking them up, follow after Jesus. You pick up your doubts long enough, follow after Jesus. One day, all your doubts go away. Not next Tuesday, but like when we're in heaven, there's no doubt. <laughs> Nobody's coming up to you like, seriously, you believe in Jesus? You'd be like, ask him yourself, all right? He's the <laughs> shiny one on the throne. <clears throat> the, opposite of, the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. Here's why. Because fear paralyzes. Faith produces action. Right. Are you setting an example by faith, or is fear paralyzing you? I mean, like you're so concerned about what everybody thinks about you that you don't have the hard conversations. Or you're dishonest with your staff about the areas that they need to grow in, and you call it love, but you're really setting them up for failure. Are you full of fear? Are you ruled by fear? And Paul puts his hands on Timothy, and he, I just saw this this week, and he says, God has not given you a spirit of fear. Fear is not a feeling. Fear is a spirit that is not put there by the Holy Spirit. 
And what drives that out is this spirit of power and a spirit of love and a spirit of self-control. So let me ask you, what are you afraid of? What is that thing that when you go home that God has called you to step into by faith that you have been avoiding? Do you realize by doing that, by walking, not, not walking in some sort of um, ego and some sort of confidence in you and your own ability, but <clears throat> faith is simply acting as if God is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises. That's what bold faith is. It, it's, like when, it's like when Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray and the guy at the, at the temple steps says, would you give me some money? And Peter says, look at me. And you know the text in Acts chapter 3. The guy looks at him expecting to get some money. And how many of you know that oftentimes what we ask for is not what we need and God wants to give us what we need, not just what we ask for. This guy wanted money. God had a miracle for him. And Peter says, look at me. Silver and gold have I none, right? I'm in ministry. I ain't got no money. But what I have, I give to you. Rise up and walk. And then the Bible says that Peter reaches out his hand and, and then the man's ankles were healed and he stood up and walked. Think about that. It does not say that he said rise up and walk. And look, man, who would have the bold faith to do this? I would probably be like, it's good news. I'm going to the prayer meeting. I'll put you on the prayer list. God bless you, okay? Not Peter. Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God, says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. But he didn't walk yet. It wasn't until he reached out his hand by faith that the man stood up and walked. Which leads me to ask this question. How many miracles are still sitting on the sidewalk because of our lack of faith? Set for them an example in faith. Amen. Listen, church planner. Go for it. Go for it. I mean, just, so what if it fails? Who cares? So we're going to be dead in a hundred years? Just go for it. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, just go for it. You know why? Because what if it works? What if it works? Glory to God. Amen. Set for them an example in faith and set for them an example in purity. In purity. This also applies to our entertainment choices. Now, I know you're so mature in Christ that you can swim in a sea of sin without getting wet, but God bless you. (laughs) But that we are to be an example of purity. But not just in regards to the things that we were taught as children, you know, like avoid these things, but also in regards, I believe, to our motives of ministry. Are you still serving Jesus and his bride with a pure heart and motive? Or are you pimping out your evangelical abilities for your own gain? If that's you, please get help. And help is sitting right around you. We love you. We are for you. You see, Psalm 139, David says these words, which if you take them very seriously could change your world. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So what do you do 
when the Spirit of God loves you enough and disciplines you enough and reminds you of the command of God to be holy and that our conduct matters and that obedience matters, when, he, when you hold up the perfect righteous law of the Lord and your reflection in there is scarred and marred, what do you do? You say, God, would you just search me? God, I know you, that you know my heart. Would you try me? Would you know my thoughts? God, would you point out the grievous things in me where you have called me to be holy? And I celebrate, I celebrate the imputed righteousness of Christ in my life. And because of that, may your grace be a mother and a nurse for me to pursue holiness and pursue righteousness. Not an excuse for me not to. And by the love of the Heavenly Father and the blood of His Son, Jesus, and the comfort of the Spirit of God under the authority of the Word of God, God, like a, like a hammer and a chisel, would you chisel out everything in me that does not look like Jesus? Now we know, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a significant difference between the condemnation of an, the enemy. Condemnation is a building term. It means unfit for use. That's a lie from the enemy. He says, if they only knew about you, then they would know that you are done. You are unfit for use. But the Spirit of God sees that same building. I'm not saying you're not jacked up. You're more jacked up than any of us, all right? Me too. And yet the Spirit of God says, that, that, that building's not unfit for use. That's my permanent address here on this planet. That's the temple. I'm going to move in. We're going to start a renovation project from the inside out. So therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the conviction of the Spirit of God in our life is like a warm blanket for the soul. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. That's a lot of us in this room. And he says, and I will give you rest. I don't even know what this means, rest for your soul. What does that mean? I don't know, but I love it. And so, be holy. Paul tells Timothy, you have been called to a holy calling. I think the calling itself is set apart, but I think we have also been called to be set apart and live different lives so that people, men and women in our congregations, in our city, and these days all around the world, that they could see our good works and give glory to the Father. And when we stumble and when we fall, we fall on the grace of God and we receive Jesus' invitation to come to Him and rest in His holiness. Would you let me pray for you? Dear God, we make the words that you gave to David. God, we pray your words back to you. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in us. And lead us in the way of everlasting. And God, we confess to you our egos and our insecurities And God, we come running to you and not from you. God, we thank you and we praise you that your divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, everything that we need for everything that you have called us into. That means that your divine power has given us through the blood of Jesus, the strength, the courage, the ability, the faith to walk in holiness, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We pray this in Jesus' name, the only name that matters when you pray. Amen.